Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9 of the True Crime Couple podcast. Once again, I'm Kay. And I'm John. And we just wanted to apologize really quick before we start this episode because we know we've been a little late on the last few episodes, but we promise from this week on we're going to release all of our episodes on Saturdays. So that's when you're going to hear from us next, next Saturday. We want to thank everyone for reaching out to us on social media. The response from the Josephine County episode was great and we loved it. We loved talking about the episode and debating about it with people. So just remember, if you ever have any feedback about an episode, you can reach us at True Crime Couple, both Instagram and Twitter. And please follow us on Instagram and Twitter because that's where we release all of our photos about every episode we have. And you can follow along with us that way. You can also follow and comment on the blogs that we post for each episode on our website, truecrimecouple.com. And if you'd like to donate to our Patreon page, you can do that at patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. In this episode, we will try and recount the events of a triple homicide that occurred on the night of April 11th, 1981, in the foothills of the Sahara Nevada Mountains in a California town. A mother, her 15-year-old son, and his friend were bound, bludgeoned, and stabbed to death, all while two siblings and the son of a family friend slept quietly in the house. When a neighbor is sent to check the scene, he peers through a bedroom window and finds three unharmed adolescent boys. He ushers them through a window, sparing them from the grotesque scene beyond the bedroom. Upon further inspection of the scene, investigators will find that there is someone missing from the house, the fifth child of the murdered woman, a 12-year-old girl, and she is nowhere to be found. The slayings of the family members in Cabin 28 come to be known as the Ketty Murders and remains unsolved to this day. With its various twists and turns, it has gained a following within the true crime community, so like always, let's lay out the facts and talk about the possible scenarios and theories. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Glenna Sharp, who went by her middle name of Sue, had left her abusive husband in Connecticut and decided to start a new life with her five children in the resort town of Ketty, California, in November of 1980. Moving across the country was supposed to be a fresh start for the family. But this move was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. Sue had first moved in with her sister for a year in Missouri. However, during her time there, she decided to try and make things work one more time with her husband. This only lasted six months because he was still abusive and she knew she needed to start a better life for her and her five kids. After this final try, she decided to move in with her brother in Quincy, California. Quincy is a town that's about six miles south of the town of Ketty and the two are very closely associated. In finding the town of Ketty, Sue made the decision that this was the place where her family could be started again. Ketty is surrounded by mountains in the northeastern California county of Plumas and is located 90 miles northwest of Reno, Nevada. The town was originally set up as a resort town and it's only made up of a general store, a bar, and several cabins. As the economy declined due to the failure of several railroads, like always, and a logging industry, 
the cabins became home to squatters and low-income families. And this is going to lead way to rumors spreading about what was really happening in the cabins up in Ketty. At the time the Sharps lived in the cabin, Ketty had been described two ways. First, in the descriptions given by the children that lived there at the time, it was paradise. The kids had a vast forest that led up to the mountains to play in, and they all lived in such close proximity to each other. There was always someone around and something to do. The kids in the town of Ketty were extremely close, as were the adults. Summers were filled with barbecues where everyone from the extremely small town would get together. And when I say small town, I mean extremely small town. The 2000 census said that the town only had 100 people, which is just around the same amount of people that were in the town when the murders took place. But recently in the 2010 census, there's only 66 people who live in the town of Ketty. There's 66 people? That's it. Well, it's only 0.6 square miles, so it's extremely small, but there's only 66 people. I believe it said 32 households. That is insane. That means everyone knows everyone's business. (laughs) Everyone knows. It's kind of like our apartment community. Our complex is insane. On other nights, most adults would gather at the backdoor bar, which is in walking distance from a group of cabins. So if you go to the backdoor bar and you look you're like you're standing on the porch of it when you look forward you're looking at the back of cabin six seven and eight and the murder that we're talking about happened in cabin 28 so it's a little further back but it's really walking distance to the bar okay so you can like i mean you could just walk right out the bar door and And you're basically in the cabin complex or whatever okay yeah that makes i mean okay however there seemed to be a dark underbelly to the town that the kids as is usually the case were ignorant to There were whisperings of a few families in town selling or smuggling drugs. And as the case remained unsolved for several years, the rumors will add in the involvement of law enforcement in this quiet business taking place. And although it is reported that the residents of Ketty could sleep with their doors open, a look into police reports from the mid-70s to mid-80s tells a completely different story. There's nothing but reports of missing property and break-ins. And most of these reports are going to say that it's somebody... They suspect someone broke into their cabin that was staying with somebody else or someone that they didn't know from the community. So it seems to be a lot of people moving in and out of these cabins all the time. Hmm. And that's the people who are committing these crimes. Either way, the Sharp family was enjoying their time away from their abusive husband and father. Sue reportedly told a friend that the kids could play, joke around, and play fight with each other without fear of repercussions for the first time. The Sharp family was comprised of Sue, who was 36 years old, her eldest son, Johnny, who was 15, Sheila, 14, Tina, who was 12, and Rick, who was 10 years old, and the youngest, Greg, was 5 years old. As great of a time as the family was having, Sue definitely had some difficulties being a single mother of five children. At the age of 13, Sheila had become pregnant, so there was a lot of things the family was dealing with. She had spent some time living with other family members during her pregnancy. I know that she had given birth in Oregon. She didn't give birth in California. Later on, Sheila is going to have custody of her son. So it's presumed that family members had taken care of her son for her while she was still growing up. And I'm assuming after these murders are going to take place. The family also struggled to get by financially. The family lived off food stamps assistance from the Navy, as Sue's ex-husband was a veteran, 
and a stipend from the federal education program as Sue was taking college classes. And at the time of the murder, Sue had recently just found a part-time job. So she had a lot on her plate. She was taking college classes, raising five children, who by all accounts seemed to be great kids, but they seemed to be a bit of a handful, especially Johnny and Sheila. I mean, any single mother that's taking care of five kids and having a part-time job and, and going, going to, to school, that's kind of hard. It's I don't think anybody can like really juggle that. That's hard. It's a lot of work. And by all accounts from the family, Sue was described as a great mother. She was really hardworking and she was quiet. She really would rather stay at home than go out to the bar or go out with friends. And she was mainly focused on providing a better life for her five children, which just makes everything that happened all that much more tragic. Okay, so now that we delved in a little bit into the situation surrounding the family and the town, let's discuss the night of the murders. First, we need to establish where everyone was, as there's a lot of players in this whole scenario. It gives us a better timeline, and it possibly alludes to some specific scenarios that could have taken place the night of the murder. Sue was at home the night of the murders with her sons Ricky and Greg and their friend, 12-year-old Justin Eastman. He was staying the night. Tina, Sue's youngest daughter, arrived back at cabin 28 at 10 p.m. after watching TV with neighbors in cabin 27. Sue's eldest daughter, Sheila, was going to be spending the night in the neighboring cabin, also cabin 27, with her friends, the Seabolt family. So Sheila and Tina are best friends with the girls, the Seabolt girls, who live in the cabin directly next door, cabin 27. And Justin Eastman lives next to them in cabin 26. So they all live, like I said before, in close proximity to each other. All of these kids were always playing together. So the night of the murder, Sheila is sleeping at the Seabolt's house, but Justin Eastman is sleeping at the Sharp's house. Gotcha. Johnny, the eldest son, was out with his friend Dana Wingate. The two teenage boys had spent the day and evening in Quincy, which was that town that's just seven miles south, and they had been seen walking along Route 70. It is thought that the two may have hitchhiked home. We're going to get into the whereabouts of Johnny and Dana throughout the whole day and night, so I don't want to get into it too specifically, but it's unknown exactly what time the two get home, and we don't know if they walked in on the murders taking place or that if the two were already home. And Johnny had his room in the basement of the cabin, so we don't know if Dana and Johnny were downstairs in the basement, heard the murders taking place, and ran upstairs to see what was happening. So we don't know exactly how that scenario played out with Johnny and Dana. The murders were discovered the following morning on April 12, 1981, around 8 a.m., when Sheila was returning home. She walked into the grisly scene. She saw blood all over the living room of the cabin, and three bodies sprawled out on the floor. She ran back to the neighbor's cabin, which she had stayed in the night before, and she told him that she had seen three bodies on her living room floor, she didn't know who they were, and they immediately called the police. The family in which Sheila ran to, the Seabolt family, sent their eldest son, Jamie, to see what happened in cabin 28. He checks the house and saw three bodies. He's able to immediately identify one of the bodies as Johnny Sharp. However, not wanting to go inside and having the wherewithal to know not to disturb a crime scene, the boy leaves the cabin and begins looking into the windows of the house. In one of the bedrooms, he sees three sleeping boys. They are still alive. 
It seems Ricky, Greg, and Justin have slept through the brutal murders that took place only a few feet from them. Jamie Siebel, with the help of Sheila, ushers the boys through the bedroom window to spare them from passing through the traumatizing scene that's laying just outside their bedroom door. People arrive immediately at the scene, and Sue's brother, who lives in nearby Quincy, is called over as well. Once on the scene, he's able to confirm that the remains of the woman in the living room are his sister, his nephew, and his nephew's best friend, Dana Wingate. All right, so now we're going to get into what the crime scene looked like. And this is definitely not a pretty picture. I went on a website called Ketty28, which really is a great source for all of the information surrounding this case. And on the website, they had the actual autopsy reports. So what we're going to do now is explain the crime scene, what was left there, and what happened to the bodies. So if this part's not for you, you might want to fast forward a little bit. It was evident by the look of the cabin that the three victims found on the living room floor met a brutal end. Blood pooled around each victim, staining the floors, and blood splatter painted the walls from every blow that was received by the victims. All three victims were bound with medical tape and appliance wire. They had been stabbed, bludgeoned, and strangled to death. According to their autopsies, the following wounds were sustained. Okay, so this is the body of Sue Sharp. According to the autopsy files, Sue was a small woman standing around 5'2 and weighing only about 100 pounds. She showed no signs of sexual trauma whatsoever. She had a large bruise on her left thigh. Dried blood was found on the bottom of the victim's feet. So this is implying that she may have not been tied up for the entirety of the attacks because she had to have been walking around with blood in the cabin, but she was also bound. So they're thinking that she was attacked, was trying to get away, and then was bound by her attackers. Right, that way she couldn't get away. Right. Yeah. Her hands are bound by two different types of black electrical wire, as well as electrical tape. The victim's hands were crisscrossed in front of her stomach. The cord wrapped around her thigh and went down to her ankles, then binding her two ankles together. The victim had a gag placed deep in her mouth made from a blue bandana and a nylon stocking, double-knotted together. The gag was held in place by four pieces of tape, all around eight inches in length. There was a stab wound to the middle of the victim's neck, three additional deep stab wounds to the victim's chest. The victim's head and face showed several zones of blunt force trauma. All of these wounds reached down and exposed to the skull. Lacerations were found on the upper right eyelids and above the victim's lips. One deep stab wound was located in her lower stomach region just above her pelvic bone. An additional stab wound was located just below the victim's left nipple, along with a one-inch deep puncture wound right below the stab wound. All of these stabbings were done with Sue's clothes on, so they were fully saturated with blood. There was also extensive bruising on the victim's lips, And there were several defensive wounds made to the victim's hands and arms. So it is clear that Sue was fighting for her life the entire time. And that must have been why she had to be bound. It seems that in all, Sue took massive damage to the left side of her face and head. Johnny Sharp's autopsy revealed that he had the following wounds. Two cuts above his right eye and bruising in both eyes. However, it is reported that Johnny had a week-old black eye at the time of the attacks, so one of them was an older bruise and one of them was a newer bruise. 
The victim's throat was slashed, and a puncture wound scratch was right below the large slash in his throat. Seven deep lacerations were on the left side of his head. Not large, but deep. The right side of Johnny's head had an irregular laceration, which went so deep that the that it fractured the skull, and in most of these wounds, Johnny's skull was actually protruding from his head. In diagrams made by the medical examiner, it's clear that the weapon used to do this was a hammer. Lacerations were also found behind the right ear and at the base of his skull, so there was a stab wound right at the base of his skull. Ligature marks were found both on his wrists and ankles. Johnny and Dana are going to be bound just like Sue was bound, but the ankle the wire that was around the ankle of the two boys is actually going to be connected so that infers that the two boys were tied up together whereas Sue was kind of tied up separately so that goes towards the theory that maybe the boys had walked in on this or were trying to save Sue from whatever was happening Dana Wingate's autopsy report revealed that he had sustained the following injuries now it's very interesting because Dana's injuries very much mirror what Johnny's injuries were On the left side of the victim's head, he had two large, dark red rectangular marks just above his ear. Now, this is presumably done by the butt of the gun that the murderers are going to use. So also on the left side are going to be three deep lacerations, two stabbing wounds, one of them clearly made by a hammer. On his face, he had massive bruising and swelling of the left eye and lips. The victim also had a small cut above his lip and bruising and scraping on his chin. On the right side of the victim's head, there was a semicircle abrasion and deep lacerations in the area just behind his ear. One deep stabbing laceration was evident right above the base of his skull, just like Johnny. Same thing, ligature marks found on both wrists and ankles. There was also signs of strangulation by hand done to the victims. Wow. Yeah, it was a brutal, brutal attack that happened. Now, I'm no pro, but I just want to say this. What's up with everybody suffering injuries to the left side of their body? Which would... The only thing I can think of is if the person was left-handed. That could be what happened. Or they could have just... That's the way they were tied up. Like, they were tied up on their right side, so that's the side of the head that was exposed. If they were laying down on their right side. Yeah. Maybe. Like if they were tied up, they were bound and tied up, and they were laying on their right side. Yeah. And then they... There was injuries done to both sides of the head, but the left side of the heads all do have the most extensive damage. But the, that's what I'm saying. And it's weird because, I mean, I hope I never ever have to deal with being in this scenario, but I will say this. If you're bound and you're getting hit on your left side... It would only be natural to try to like kind of twist, tur- twist and turn the other way to avoid more blows to the face or, or body. That's true. So that's probably why there's damage on the right side as well, but not as much as the left side. So that person was striking the left side of everyone's body and head. Correct. And, and then that's going on the theory that there's only one person. I mean, it's concluded that the attacks were made with two separate hammers a table knife, and a butcher knife, as well as a Daisy Powerline 880 rifle. So that's a lot of murder weapons there. It's a lot of weapons being used. So that kind of implies that there was at least two attackers. It also... Two hammers, two knives. It also implies that these are these people that... Person or people, whatever you want to you know say here, they had to be known in the town. 
the only reason why I say that is just because it's like if everyone's in such close proximity, it's like how would nobody hear it or I don't know. That's so strange to me. What the neighbors heard and what the neighbors didn't hear is going to come into play when the police start investigating, especially with the timeline that they're going to create. But getting back to what happened at the scene, two knives and one hammer are going to be found at the scene. So what's missing is one hammer and the rifle. Now it's determined that that was the type of rifle that was used in the attack because the butt of the rifle was used and that indicated that rifle was indicated in the bruising that happened on Johnny's skull. Which, that means he got hit really hard. Yeah, to twice. Sort of impression. It's kind of like a T-shaped impression that you see just above his ear. And it looks like he was hit twice with the butt of the rifle extremely hard. Now, the attacks were so brutal that hammer and knife marks were also found in the walls. So it seemed like the people who were swinging were swinging wildly. Which indicates that the attack was really aggressive and really loud. And, of course, like we said before, because of the amount of weapons and the fact that three people were subdued and tied up, kind of indicates that there's more than one killer. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Did they determine if the butcher knife and the butter knife, or, I'm sorry, I don't, it was a butter knife, right? Like a, Not a butter knife, but a table knife, right, like a so steak like a, knife. Okay, so like a, the steak knife and the butcher knife. Did we find out if those those two knives were in the family's home? Like, were they there? Was it the Sharps knives? <laughs> It it was, <laughs> it was the, it was the one knife was indicated to be the sharps knife, but the other one they didn't know if it was their knife. But the collection of utensils that the family had was kind of like haphazard and kind of like hand me downs, and it wasn't just one collection of knives or one collection of forks. So it could have very the second knife could have very well have been theirs. They just couldn't determine that indefinitely. Okay, I'm only I'm only saying that because did they bring the weapons? Did they bring those weapons? Because then you can say, okay, well, there's definitely two people involved based on the amount of weapons there. Right. But if two of the weapons were there in the home, and then the person just used it, you can kind of make that other argument. Whether it there. was planned, whether or not. it was planned or not, exactly. Correct. So it's halfway through the commotion of securing this scene on this crazy, hectic morning. They're trying to identify the bodies. And then that's when someone asks a question that escaped most of the minds involved in investigating the scene. Where is Tina? Wow. Where is Tina? The missing 12-year-old girl completely changed the direction of the case. The murder investigation is kind of put on hold in order to focus all of its efforts on finding Tina. In the whole commotion of there being three bodies in the household, there being five sharp children... Everyone was kind of more focused on securing the scene that they didn't realize that Tina was missing. But once they realize that Tina's missing, an all points bulletin is going to be released. Posters for Tina are going to go up all over Ketty and in the surrounding areas, and the FBI is going to be called in. Also, the fact that Tina is missing brings law enforcement to the conclusion that she was the main reason for the attack. She was the intended target. Now, this is going to pull their focus into a suspect pool that's a very different breed. Whereas before, you're looking just for a murderer. Now, you're looking for someone who's going to abduct a child. And unfortunately, there's a few people that came to mind in the case of Tina Sharp. Sheila is going to reveal to law enforcement that the reason her mother left her father, Jim Sharp, wasn't just because he was abusive to her, but because he had been sexually abusing her and Tina for a very long time. She also revealed that Tina was considered Jim's favorite. That's so gross. Disgusting. 
Because Jim was in the Navy, local law enforcement called in the NCIS to do a background check on him and to hold surveillance in case that Jim really did have Tina or had her abducted and now had custody of her. So law enforcement's really going to focus in on Jim Sharp because in reality, it's not too much of a stretch that he's the one who committed this crime. He was abusive to his wife. She'd stayed for years. She finally had the courage to leave him permanently, was enjoying her life, and now he lost the two girls that he was sexually abusing. And with all of those things not even considered, usually when child abduction cases happen and the couple's divorced, it's usually the other it's usually the other spouse who abducted the child to get custody not, back. And even if it's not, it's just it's just I, I believe it would just be protocol to go see if the other um, spouse, has, spouse the child. has the child. Correct. So that's why they look into Jim Sharp so much in the beginning. However, Jim Sharp was not just across the country when the murders took place. He also had an alibi and he allowed NCIS to search his property thoroughly on separate occasions. He also took and passed a lie detector test. So he was cleared as a suspect. Another suspect, which would make sense if Tina was the main target of the attack, would be her teacher, Joel Lipsy. Joel Lipsy seemed to have a fixation on Tina, and he was, I believe, a special ed teacher at the school she was in. He had a picture of her on his desk and also in his home, which is so weird. I know as a teacher that I would definitely call the police if one of my coworkers had a picture of one of their students on their desk and in their house. That's so bizarre. I couldn't get over that fact. Yeah, I'm creeped out. It's really creepy. That's strange. It said that he had a, um, like I said, like a fixation on her. Like he was kind of obsessed with her. He was always asking after her. He was staying with her after school. He paid special attention to her. Poor Tina. I know. She's attracting all this negative, gross attention. Well, something that struck me as interesting was while watching an interview that Sheila gave, she describes her sister Tina as being very gullible, very angelic, very young. And it's sad that a young girl who fell victim to a sexual predator, her father, is also going to appear to be a magnet to another man who seemed to have the same intentions, her teacher. So these are two men in powerful positions in her life that are going to try and appeal to her and make her a victim all over again. And unfortunately, with sexual abuse, what happens is if someone's a victim once, it makes it all the more likely that they're going to be victimized again because these predators seek out these victims. They can see it in somebody that they're someone who's hurt and looking for somebody. Not to mention, I'm sure if, if it happens at a young age, it's almost like you know that it's not normal, but you become immune to it and you just accept it. And that's why it's easier to happen again, I would believe. I, I, would, I would assume. I don't know. Yeah, and it's it's really sad that this is something that happened to Tina. And it also, we'll get into later, could lead to why this whole murder took place. Because it is one theory that there's a few other suspects in this case that some people believe were abusing Tina as well. Tina's teacher, however, is not the perpetrator in this case. He had an airtight alibi for the murders, but hopefully they got him for being a creep. Yeah, really. At least lose your teaching no more, license, no more you weirdo. No more pictures of students on your desk, Ugh. you creepazoid. So weird. <laughs> 
The investigators then began to think that maybe Tina was taken to throw off investigators as to who committed the murders. Maybe this whole thing was just a ploy because they're not going to focus on the crime scene and evidence there. And they just did this to throw them off completely. It's possible. It is really possible because when you look at the autopsy report, it seems like the main target of the attack was Sue because she was, I mean, they all received extensive injuries, but it seemed like the injuries were focused on Sue and that they had taken their time with her. Now, quick question. Was Tina, where was Tina supposed to be? Tina was at home. She was watching TV at the Seabolt's house where Sheila was staying. Tina comes home at 10 o'clock from watching TV because her mother didn't allow her to sleep over there because she thought she was too young. Okay. So Tina gets home at 10 o'clock and then goes right to bed the same time the boys go to bed. So Tina was at home during the attacks. But this is so bizarre. Why was Tina taken, air quotes, and the boys weren't touched? See, but... It, Unless it Tina play, woke up. Well, it does play into your theory about like throwing off the track here because, I mean, that's why they are focused. That's why the police is focusing on this because not only is she kidnapped and she's not present there at all, but if you're able to find Tina, then you know, then you know for a fact that Tina could tell you what went down. Exactly. So it's a, it's like a double edged sword. Like so, like she's she's being abducted. They're looking into where she is. In the hopes that they can tell her, find her, and then they can tell she can tell them where, you know, what what took place at the house. Correct. You know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. They do find Tina. Three years to the day of the crime, a hiker is walking in the woods, 29 miles away from where Cabin 28 stands, and he steps on something really hard, and he discovers that it's a skull. The discovery of the skull is going to prompt law enforcement to search the area even further. They're going to find a jawbone and several other human bones. And initially, the bones were thought to belong to a long-buried member of the Native American tribes that used to populate the area. However, before the bones can be identified through testing, as usually happens when they think they find bones of a Native American, an anonymous 911 call comes in just weeks after the finding. The caller identified the remains as belonging to Tina Sharp. He then hung up the phone and didn't continue the conversation at all. This is when investigators decide to use dental records to see if the remains really are Tina's. And they were. Poor girl. It's really sad. So this leads to a multitude of questions. Was Tina the intended target of the attack? Did someone try and abduct her but then realize that it wasn't worth it and then killed her 30 miles away from her cabin? Were the caller and the hiker connected? I mean, they must have been for the caller to know the hiker found the skull. Because how else would the caller know to call in at that time? Well, I mean... It's not really... It can't be a coincidence. See, I think that's just everyone reading into it too much. Because you have to remember, this is 1984 at this point, right? And obviously, back in 84, everything was just put on the news. I mean, everything. It's not. It's a little different than today. No, this wasn't put on the news. So this event that's taking place... The finding of the skull wasn't put on the news because they thought it was just the skull of a Native American. So they just put it in for testing. And then all of a sudden they get a call a few weeks later before the testing can even come back that it's not a Native American. Someone says, 
that's the body of Tina Sharp. Well, if they thought that the hiker and the call were connected, they would have obviously held the hiker. Well, it's interesting you say that because one of the main theories is that law enforcement at the very least was grossly negligent in the investigation of this crime. Is there a reason why? And at, well, I don't want to get into, I don't want to fast forward yet. So another theory of this whole hiker caller connection could be that maybe one of the killers is returning to the scene where Tina's body was dumped. And most do. And and saw law enforcement there. Yeah. But then why would they call in their crime? To try to show them up. It's like, you know, not only can I find the body that I, you know, of Tina, uh, well, the skull of Tina, but I could also call up and be like, hey... That's a skull of Tina. It's not a Amer- Native American, uh, you know, skull. It's just like another way to just rub it in more. And we know that people do right, that. to taunt law enforcement. It's just, it's just a taunting, uh, it's just a way to taunt. Another theory is that this could possibly be a citizen who knew the whole time that that's where Tina's body was. And now that they know the skull has been found, this is their way of ridding their guilt by calling and saying that's the body. So it's just someone who knew about the murders. It's possible. Who's now that is, that's possible saying. too. I mean, uh, there's, it's all about how you read into this as well. You know, because to just say, "Oh, the hiker and the caller are connected," um, they could be. Maybe for the first time, this is coincidence. Like always, though, I don't believe in coincidence like this. It's just it's not really my thing. But it could be. A it could be in this case. It's possible. Well. Unfortunately, the recording of the caller can never really be sent in for voice analysis because in 1984, the tape gets misplaced. Always. Yeah. Something always gets misplaced. Every time something gets misplaced. I'll tell you right now, if I died, <laughs> I would make sure... I'll well, hold on to it. you got to make sure you t- hang on to that evidence. You know I'll what I'm saying? Tr- I'll try. I don't want to find that it's gone. I'm going to be the first one who's suspected, so I really can't hold on to the evidence. Oh, well. Whatever. <laughs> It is important to mention also that during these three years before the discovery of Tina's remains, law enforcement worked hard to put together a timeline for the entire town and the surrounding areas. But before they did this, they knew they had to tackle the most baffling question of this whole case. How did the three boys sleep through a now presumed quadruple homicide that was occurring on the other side of the wall? A homicide in which four people were, maybe three people were murdered, possibly one taken or murdered. They were bound and the attack was so violent. There were stab marks and hammer marks on the walls. How did these boys not wake up? Well, that's like the same thing we were talking about in our last case uh, with Velisca. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, how the hell did these people not wake up? No matter what order... Of like, uh, you know, I just want to go uh, into that. The people you were know, murdered, right? So like, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, if these boys were all in the same room, and this was taking place outside, I, nobody in their right mind would just stay asleep. It's impossible. It's uh, very strange. It's impossible. Well, the boys were questioned extensively, but both Ricky and Greg swear that they did not see or hear anything. And you have to think, it is. It's their mother, their brother their sister. We'd like to think that if they heard something, they were going to talk about it. Investigators are going to go as far as to hypnotize both boys, but they were unsuccessful in doing so. 
However, Justin Eastman, he's a completely different story altogether. So let's get into some background on the Sharps house guest that night, Justin Eastman. He's 12 years old and he's from neighboring cabin 26, so he's only two cabins away from them. And he's very close friends with the two youngest Sharp boys, especially Ricky, because he was closest to him in age. Justin lives with his mother, Marilyn, and his stepfather, Marty Smart. His stepfather, who had served in Vietnam, was suffering from severe PTSD. On top of his psychotic breaks, he was also very abusive to both Marilyn and Justin. There is one reported incident where Marty tried to actually run over his wife and stepson with his vehicle. Most domestic issues were talked out, however, with law enforcement instead of charges being pressed due to the fact that Marty's best friend was the sheriff at the time. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Marty's PTSD symptoms are going to get so bad at one point that he had a short stint in a VA hospital, so he had to stay for a few weeks. It's here that he's going to meet a fellow veteran, Bo Bobaday. Once Marty returned home, he invited his new friend to stay. Now, Bo is a very interesting character. He's known to have confirmed ties with the Italian mafia in Chicago. And just to say the very least, these men were unsavory characters. Bo has an extensive record with the police. He possibly could be an informant for law enforcement. He was a hitman at one time for the mafia. And this isn't just rumors. These are confirmed things that he did do. And he also was in Vietnam and was suffering from PTSD himself. So the two men played off of each other in a very negative way. So we can only imagine that Marty being abusive to Justin and his wife and now having his friend Bo sleeping on the couch, it probably wasn't the best living situation for a 12-year-old boy. So when Justin was speaking with his mother the day after the murder, he told her that Johnny and Dana had come home around 12 a.m. and that they were trying to defend Mrs. Sharp, but he didn't see anything. So he's claiming that he knows things, but then he's claiming he didn't see anything. So law enforcement think that based on these statements that Justin actually saw the murders but wasn't going to say anything or he was suppressing his memory. So this is why they're going to decide that they want to hypnotize Justin Eastman. During his hypnosis, he said that the night of the murder, he had a dream that him, Mrs. Sharp, Dana Wingate, Tina, and the three Sharp brothers were on the love boat. I know it sounds a little weird. The love boat. The love boat, like the TV show. Like, like they're on the love boat on the Lazy River? Yeah, because that was the show the boys were watching with Sue before they went to bed. Okay. Okay? So they were all on this ship, and two men attacked Mrs. Sharp and the two boys with a knife and a hammer and threw their bodies overboard only to then escape on a life raft. So it was almost like he was like, what's the word, departmentalize like he's breaking this down into like like a dream sort of right well he also adds the the little detail that the murder is called mrs sharp sue so maybe what he's doing is he knows he can't tell what happened so he says that it was a dream so this is him telling without telling i understand you know what i mean 
the police officers asked Justin to sit with their sketch artist to do a composite sketch of the two men from his dream. And one of them looked eerily similar to his stepfather, Marty Smart, which would be another reason why Justin probably felt like he couldn't tell. Because if you had an abusive stepfather who was best friends with the sheriff, would you then tell the sheriff's office that he was the one who did this after you've probably been threatened? Let me ask you this real quick. What were the ages of the children that were killed with the mother? Tina was 12. Okay. Johnny was 15. Dana was 17. It's weird because he not like, okay, so Justin doesn't want to speak. He doesn't want to say anything, right? Well, in, in reality, he's really kind of the only one who is talking to law enforcement. Because Ricky and Greg haven't said a right, thing. Right, but he's being cryptic. Yes, he's being cryptic. So it's like, well, I, I'm just getting like this, I'm getting this like feeling where the three boys were in the room together. Yeah. They all, I guess, didn't hear anything, right? Correct. And it was literally the other side of the wall. Now, if it was, let's just say, his stepfather and that dude, Bo, mm-hmm. let's just say they went into that house and committed this crime, his stepfather has to know he's there. What if it's more of like a thing where... Well, he knew where his stepson was staying. Right, no, no, I know. But I'm saying like he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you can go to that kid's house because he was using Justin as a way to like get in the house and like sort of infiltrate. I know that sounds really stupid. No, I know what you're saying. You're kind of saying that, well, if I did commit these murders, then wouldn't my stepson have told on me? Right. But they must have had, maybe the two men had very strong influence over these boys, which is so plausible because... As a kid, a threat is the scariest thing in the world to you. And even as you get older, you kind of become emotionally arrested at that age when the threat takes place. So, like, you think of these three boys are still alive today, and they've never said a thing. I know. And that, and that's, that's, that's from fear. That speaks a lot. But the thing is, these three boys, though, if, if a murderer is going to come in mm-hmm. and kill those people in the, in the front of the home, why would they leave anyone? Like, I know that sounds... Okay, from a normal, I know what you're saying. You don't want to leave people, any witnesses. Right. You wouldn't want to leave any witnesses. I mean, it's it's a sick thing to uh, but then, say, but you would just go on a rampage and just wind up killing everyone. Why would you want even one person there to, to be able to point you out? Well, maybe that alludes to the fact that Sue got attacked. Dana and Johnny came upstairs because they heard it. Tina heard it, and she came out. But if the boys stayed in their room... Maybe Almost they didn't they search the cabin. Gonna, or they knew that it was going to go down. Or they were just scared shitless and they didn't want to leave their room. Yeah, but if the murder, the murderer would have went, or the murderers would have went and checked the house. It's true. And then the boys were just casually sleeping in their beds. It, it doesn't didn't make sense. seem like they were scared. No, it doesn't. So this is important to reflect on because it brings up a lot of scenarios what could have happened that night. Like we kind of just went over and trust me, we'll go over extensively in the theories. But... Justin Eastman, no matter which way you want to cut it, seemed to know a lot more than he was leading on. Does he not feel comfortable revealing to law enforcement what happened because his abusive stepfather, the one who committed the crimes, is best friends with the sheriff? Is it even possible that Justin saw the crimes? But there's something interesting when we talk about Justin seeing the crimes, and that's how the cabin was set up. There's a rendering of the cabin done online, which I'll put up on the Instagram and Twitter, that shows a sight projection from the bedrooms in the cabin. 
So there's the boy's bedroom and then there's the girl's bedroom. And you only can see into the living room from looking out the girl's bedroom, which could be why Tina got murdered. Because if she opened her door, the killers would have seen her immediately. Whereas the boy's bedroom, because it's on the other side of the wall of the living room, it's a little different. They couldn't just open their door and see into the living room. They had to look around a corner. So it's very clear that if they saw the murders, the murderers saw them. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Like It would just be hard. There's so or many... Or the murderers just didn't look around. They just... I don't know. It's... It could, it could also be these people are so psychotic. Maybe it's not even... We can't get obsessed with the fact that it could be Marty Smart and Bo. What if it's just some psychopaths that just didn't kill them? I know. It's just that you risk so much going into a household, killing only... Or Justin know. saw them. He looked around the corner and they just left him because they're sick. I don't know. It's a really hard thing. I'm just saying... When, you, when we talk about these serial killers, when we talk about these deranged people, mm-hmm. even though they're deranged and out of their friggin' mind, they still do their due diligence. They're going to look. Right. They're going to look. They're going to stake out, you know, the area where they're planning on doing this, how to do a successful cleanup, how to get out of the area in time. And I just don't think that that's, that's not the MO of someone that's, that, that's done this. And even if it's not, like, their first time, or it is their first time, I mean, it doesn't matter. Like, these things are planned. This this did not look like it was planned. This looked like they just came in, they waited for everyone, or... Yeah, there's they a saw... certain amount of rage that took place with this. It's just, it's just weird to me. I don't see how a killer comes into a residence and doesn't kill everyone there. Right. I mean, unless that the stepfather did see Justin, told him to keep his mouth shut, and keep the boys sleeping i don't know i mean it's there's no way that attack wasn't loud but like you said before with the there's no way the velisca attacks weren't loud yeah and and i said on that episode that especially because sue was gagged right even if you're gagged you're still able to like make noises make noises and like i said with velisca it was the other side of the wall right like i said with velisca though it's like the only thing that would make sense is if these people were fucking drugged and they were out cold, out for the count. Right. Now, it's just, it's bizarre because here's a quadruple murder that took place, and you have three witnesses, and none of them heard or saw anything. And it seems like the key to the case is those boys recalling what happened that night. Yeah. And, and they can't, and they're no. not talking. So, law enforcement had their hands tied when it came to the three boys. So what they decided to do was kind of hit the pavement and ask everyone in the surrounding areas what they remember, what they saw. They wanted to try and create a timeline for this family. So what they did was they organized all collected data the police put together and all of the information they received from witnesses that they questioned, whether they were in the town of Quincy or they were in the town of Keddy, and they put together a timeline. And in reading this timeline, it was really interesting to see how interconnected and close all of these families that live in the cabins really are. Everyone seems to know each other. People spend a lot of time together. And 
one thing's for sure is that people are always watching. This whole, like, little cabin community kind of seems like they're all entangled within each other. Like, there's this whole other world. Like, they're in their own world here. And a lot of them in low-income families receiving government assistance don't have jobs. So they're home all the time. So these people are spending a lot of time with each other. It also doesn't help that all you have in the town is a convenience store. And a bar. And a bar. Yeah. It's a recipe for disaster. And, and it was. The timeline that the police create is an extensive 24 pages. So we're going to highlight for you the important information. If you want to read the whole timeline, you can go to the website that I discussed before, keddy28.com. This is an amazing source for any and all information compiled on this case. First, let's go over the movement of Dana and Johnny the day and night of the murders. It seemed the two boys were bouncing around Quincy for the better part of the day, accepting various rides as they were hitchhiking around town. They ended up at their friend Kathleen Barclay's house. They stayed at her house from 6 p.m. to about 7, 7.30 p.m., but most signs are going to point to that they left around 7. She tried to talk them into staying, but Johnny told her that his mother was expecting them to be home that night. The two boys didn't drink or do any drugs while they were at Kathleen's house. She did, however, see Dana take one of his insulin shots. What I want to do right now is talk a little bit about Dana because he seems to be overlooked in this whole case and in everything I read about, he wasn't talked about a lot. In any documentary I saw, he was rarely talked about and that's probably because he didn't have anyone advocating for him, which is extremely sad. Dana lived in a foster home and he's been in the foster care system for most of his life. He was 17 years old. And recently, he had run into some trouble. He was on probation because kind of uh, just about a year prior to the event of the murders, he is going to get arrested for slashing $7,000 worth of tires at a tire center, which is a lot of money back in the 1980s. Wow, he's a badass. He is. Like, he just went crazy. (laughs) He's like, let's just get these tires. Yeah. Well, it seemed like he had a lot of deep-rooted anger because of you know, growing up in the foster care system and maybe not having the best sponsoring families around him. However, since the offense, he entered the Big Brother program and started participating in karate with Johnny Sharp. And Dana seems to take comfort in Johnny's friendship and the companionship of the Sharp family that really seemed to accept him. Dana actually kind of felt very at home in that cabin community of Keddie. And he seemed to be getting his life back on track and moving in a better direction. Dana was also dating the teenage daughter of the Seabolt family that lived in Cabin 27. So that's why he he liked to hang around the cabin so often, because that's where his girlfriend was, right next door to the Sharp family. Johnny and Dana were spotted uh, two separate times walking along Highway 70, trying to make it back to Keddie Cabins. Once they were seen at 10 p.m. and again they were seen at 11 p.m. This would coincide with Justin's claim that Dana and Johnny got home around 12 a.m. So this kind of leads to the fact that maybe Justin is telling the truth and he's trying to get his truth out however he can. Other highlights from the timeline that law enforcement created was as follows. 
After going out with friends and picking up her two youngest boys from sports practice, Sue was at home with Ricky, Greg, and Justin at around 6 p.m. So Sue was going to arrive home at 6 p.m. Ricky and Justin went out to ride bikes while Sue got dinner together, which was burritos. All boys had come home and eaten dinner by 7 p.m. I love burritos. I know. Oh, so sad. During this whole time, Sheila and Tina were watching TV at the Seabolt's house. Tina is going to come back home at 7.30 to do the dishes. What a good daughter. <laughs> I would have never went home from playing to go do dishes and then go back oh, out. Yeah, me neither. Sue gave her permission to go back to the Seabolt's house to watch TV. Tina doesn't return back to the cabin until 10 p.m. It's then that she goes to bed. The three boys also go to bed at 10 p.m. So Mm. Tina, the three boys, all go to bed at the same time. In between that time, Sheila is going to come home around 8 or 9. And when she comes home, the boys and her mother are watching Love Boat, which is adorable. And she just stops home to get clothes for the sleepover. So that's the last time she's going to see her mother alive. Marty Smart and his wife Marilyn and Bo, their third wheel, head to the back door bar. That's the name of the bar. At 10 p.m. What a name, huh? I know. The back door bar. Yep. Good. Glad you emphasized that for us all. (laughs) (laughs) They had to pass cabin 28 to get to the bar. So sometime earlier that day, Bo had asked Sue if she wanted to go to the bar with him that night. Sue refused him, knowing that she had Justin staying over the house and Dana was going to stay over the house that night, too. Bo was upset about this, and Marilyn reports that at the bar, she heard Bo say, I feel like killing someone tonight, or something along those lines. Sometime during their stay at the bar, Marty is going to get into a fight with the workers and patrons of the bar when they turn off his country music and put on some rock and roll music. So Marty, Bo, and Marilyn all have to prematurely leave the bar because Marty's temper gets set off. Oh, Marty. To avoid conflict, the three walk back to their cabin. But at 1.15 a.m., Marty and Bo are going to return to the bar after Marty called to apologize about his outbursts. Marilyn does not return with them to the bar. So the two of the men, the two men set off on 115, at 1.15 a.m. again. A woman wakes up her husband in cabin 16 because she hears muffled screaming. She looks at her clock and it's 1.15 a.m. And this is in the cabin complex. 16. Cabin 16, but the way it's set up is in lines. So in reality, she's like more like across the street, one house over neighbor. Uh, okay. I was going to say, someone saying? from cabin 16 heard this? No, it's set up in like lines know, of 10. All right. Like how could, you know, 26, 27, or 25 not hear it? You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's kind of weird. She's kind of... Right in front of the sharps, but then over one. Okay. Over two. It's also who can sleep through it and who can't. Some people are just very light sleepers. So shortly after the murders, Marty is kicked out by Marilyn, and Bo leaves the cabin as well shortly thereafter. 
It is also reported by several different members of the cabin community that there are several unusual vehicles in the area the night of the murder, and they can't identify the people in the cars. But like I said before, there's a lot of transients in the area, so, or it could be visitors of other cabins, or could have been the murderers. Due to the information from the timeline, the composite sketch, and Justin's dream, law enforcement think it would be a good idea to question Marty and Bo. But for some reason, local law enforcement call in men from the Department of Justice Organized Crime Unit to question the two men. During his questioning, Marty makes a few strange comments. He alludes to a hammer being used and the fact that he's missing a hammer from his tool collection. And then he then he then describes that hammer for law enforcement. And this is going to come into play a little bit later. He also says that if Justin was in the house, he would know he was there and he wouldn't have been able to commit the murders. Like he really has a bleeding heart. He beats the boy on a regular basis. Marty and Bo are then questioned together, which is the biggest no-no when you're questioning two suspects. Don't question them together because then they can get their stories straight. This is the only time the two men are ever questioned about the murders and they're never investigated any further. So this brings up some questions. Was the sheriff protecting Marty? And could Bo be a possible informant for the Department of Justice? Most of these questions would not be answered because Bo will die in 1988 and Marty will die in 2006. Although this crime has overwhelming physical evidence, three potential witnesses and a whole town who seems to know a lot more than they're saying, it still remains unsolved. However, like many say, this cold case has begun to heat up as of late. And this is due to a new sheriff. In 2010, Greg Hagworth is going to become the sheriff, and he has a special interest in the case. He was a classmate of both Johnny and Dana. The three had actually all worked together on a painting crew one summer. He concludes that with the help of other investigators on his force, particularly Mike Gamberg, who was new to the force when the murders first took place, they have done more towards solving this murder case than has been done since 1981. While going through old case files, two discoveries were made by Hagworth and his team. First, the tape recordings of that 911 call from 1984 are found. Thank God. And he sent them immediately in for voice analysis and comparisons. Second, a letter was found that was written from Marty to Marilyn, and in this letter, Marty is upset because Marilyn is leaving him. The two later get divorced. One particular line of interest would be when Marty writes, I've paid the price for your love. I've bought it with the lives of four people. You tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? Marilyn, who later remarried, said she never received that letter, but did confirm that it was Smart's handwriting. Gamberg also tracked down a therapist in Reno, Nevada that treated Marty Smart. He revealed that during the sessions, Marty had made a confession about the murders. What Smart said to the therapist was reported to law enforcement, but was never used as evidence against him. So there is one theory that would... In reading these letters, it's clear that Marty was desperate to keep Marilyn in his life. And this alludes to one of the theories of the case, that Marty is going to murder Sue because she's trying to convince Marilyn to leave Marty, 
which makes sense because Marilyn herself admitted that on several occasions, Sue tried to convince her to leave Marty for what he was doing to her and to her son. Because anyone knows about this, Sue knows about this because she left her abusive husband to make a better life for her children. And she's probably convincing Marilyn to do the same. But, of course, Marty's not going to take too kindly to that because he wants to keep Marilyn and Justin in his life. It's also important to note that Marty Smart was not a fan of Johnny Sharp. Um, when In certain interviews, Sheila is going to describe her brother as being kind of like a loud mouth. I mean, he's a 15-year-old boy. And... Right. He's also a 15-year-old boy who escaped an abusive father, and now he's seeing another boy be abused by his father. So, of course, he's going to be a smart-ass to Marty Smart because he knows what kind of man he is. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Another recent discovery in 2016 also gave Hagworth more to work with. A man who was using a metal detector near a, a pond in Ketty is going to hit upon something. When he digs it up, he realizes it's a hammer. Not thinking it's of any value, he throws it into the pond. Days later, he wanders upon the website that we discussed before that's dedicated to the Ketty murders, ketty28.com, and he realizes that the hammer could have been the missing hammer from the crime scene, and he contacts the creator of the website, who then in turn contacts law enforcement. I think it's weird he didn't just call the cops right away, don't you? Yeah, really? Like, I mean, oh, yeah. Why let would me, you contact let me a website? Call the creator of this website. Yeah, yeah, it's a little strange. Weird. Law enforcement is able to recover the hammer, and it does match the description of the hammer that Marty Smart said he was missing when he got interviewed by the person from the Department of Justice years and years and years ago. So that hammer has been sent out for testing. Hagworth is glad for finding the tape, the letter, and now the hammer, but he truly believes that the key to solving this case is within the community. He believes, like most do, that people know more than they're letting on. Not only were three people in the cabin when the murders took place, but the cabin community in Ketty was extremely close and interconnected. Everyone knew and spent time with each other. And beyond being figuratively close, the cabins were physically close. How could no one have heard these brutal murders taking place? And a 12-year-old girl being carried out, whether alive or dead, is going to not only make some noise, but be really fishy looking. All they needed was people from our apartment complex to be there. The murder would have been solved in two seconds. Literally, left and right side. There's one person in each side of the building here. That does nothing but watch us. If I did that to you, they would know in five seconds, oh my god, that's John. Oh, oh, oh shit, oh. And then it would be, I would be done. I know, there they would be know. cops literally right at the edge <laughs> of the street, right before I could even make my way anywhere. They know when we get Fucked. home, they know when we go grocery shopping. And every time we watch TV, guys, there's at least one One woman in particular. in particular. The cat that, lady. The cat lady that loves to look in my window as I'm watching TV. Talk about annoying. One time when John was making breakfast, she knocked on the window and had a whole conversation with her. I had an hour and a half conversation with her <laughs> while my eggs were burning and my toast was on fire. And she carried on a conversation like everything was fine. I didn't even have a sip of coffee. Talk about fucked and up she breakfast. stayed outside the window. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in order to... Sorry, guys. In order to get the case back in the media, 
Hagworth is going to participate in a recent show, which is on Investigation Discovery, one of our favorites, with People Magazine, which highlights his new discoveries. The show ends with a plea from law enforcement for anyone who knows anything to come forward. And it really does seem like that's the way this case is going to be solved. People have to say what they know. And now there's there's no way to be scared. If it was Marty and Bo, why are these people still scared? These men are dead. No, it's That's a great point. One of the theories that's kind of pushed around but easily set aside is the fact that Sue was involved in drugs or some type of prostitution. This is not the case. We know from interviews done with her daughter, interviews done with her family, and the autopsy report, there was a toxicology done. She had no drugs or alcohol in her system. She wasn't a big drinker. She didn't do any drugs. She was working. She was trying to go to school. She was taking care of these kids. Um... And, of course, she wasn't involved in prostitution because there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Not only does Sheila say that her mom was either doing schoolwork at home or she was at her part-time job. So there's really no time in between of taking care of five kids to also be a prostitute on top of that. Yeah, I don't think she has time for that. They didn't even... She didn't even have a car. No men ever came to the house. So... It really didn't seem... It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. So that's usually pushed aside. And honestly, she is in Bumblefuck. I mean, I mean, where is she going to go where she can, like... Well, you'd go be surprised. I understand. But, I mean, you know, Bumblefuck, Street Corner, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Okay. So, the next question is, what do the boys know and what does this point to? Could the boys have been so scared about the threat that was given to them by the killers, whether it be Marty and Bo or whether it be somebody else. Maybe they were just too scared to speak. And it comes down to this. They must know this person. Like, to have Justin, the fear yeah, struck like, in them. And they have to be alive still. I mean, because what else is holding you back from speaking? You know? It's like, if those two guys are dead... Well, then... what if... What if... This threat didn't just come from Marty and Bo, but also law enforcement. Because the theory is that maybe Marty has his connection with the sheriff's department because he's best friends with the sheriff, but also maybe Bo was an informant for the Department of Justice. Because why else would a small town law enforcement agency calling the Department of Justice Organized Crime Unit to question two people they're considering in a murder investigation. So what you're trying to say is that that they just didn't want to blow Bo's cover? They didn't want to blow Bo's cover and Marty was just kind of along for the ride. That they needed needed Bo for something else because there are, there is indication that he was an informant for the Department of Justice against the organized crime in Chicago. That that's possibly why he that. was in California to take some heat off. I mean, I could see that. I could totally see that. So maybe it's not just these two men threatening them. It's law enforcement saying, you need to keep quiet. I could see that. It's a strong possibility. Yeah. Um, another thing to consider is that that could make the case go in two completely different directions. Who is the main target of this attack? I said two different directions. It could be three different directions. Because are Dana and Johnny the main targets? Is Sue the main target? Or is Tina the main target? Listen, it could also be these two kids 
We're on Highway 70. Correct. I really believe that these two kids were picked up from by a stranger off now, of the highway. Now, are you saying this is what you believe? This is your theory? This is my theory. Okay. I think that these two kids were picked up off the side of the road. Uh, you know, they were picked up. They were driven home. You know, they, they, they drove the kids home. And it's possible that that was a serial killer. Maybe. And okay. that's, you know... Yeah, they do allude to the point that there could have been a serial killer operating in the area at that time. There, there isn't like strong direct evidence, so it doesn't seem to make too much sense that it's the serial killer that sometimes people talk about. But it could be a random stranger that saw these two boys throughout the day hitchhiking. No one's really watching them. Was somebody that picked them up or someone followed them home because there is an interesting time throughout the day in the timeline where Johnny and Dana are separated for a short time because Dana gets picked up by a guy he knows on a motorcycle whereas Dana's getting a ride in a car I kind of don't know why they separate like that but they do but the man on the motorcycle who knows Dana says that Dana told him now this is all hearsay so we don't know if this is really true but that Dana told him there's somebody after me but he said Dana says stuff like that all the time so he didn't take him seriously but was there someone after the two boys yeah I mean that's what I'm saying I mean, it's a strong possibility uh, I mean, that I know I said, it could oh, be know. just some random person yeah I mean I know I said off the highway but either way whether they no, were followed was, home or yeah highway 70 is right. where they were so either whether they were followed at home or or they were given a ride back home it was a way for uh, a killer to kind of scope out his area. Or but, ask, hey, where do you live? Oh, I right. live here alone with my mom. Like, Right. But I do kind of contradict what I said before, that if it was a killer, they would definitely do their due diligence. So I don't, I know I'm kind of going back on what I said and my theory kind of conflicts, but. Well, this is a strange one. It's hard it's to kind hard. of stay in yeah, one direction. It, it is hard. Um, there's also a theory that maybe this was a drug deal gone bad with Johnny and Dana. Maybe possibly they were either running a kind of drug operation themselves or that they had, it was a drug deal gone bad with Marty and Bo. I don't see that being a possibility. I don't see that either because though. how would that affect the Sharps? Um, another theory to consider is the fact that um, maybe Tina was being sexually abused by somebody. Somebody else? Well, maybe she was being sexually abused by Bo and Marty. And that she was threatening to tell. And and then they made good on a promise of maybe killing Sue. Maybe Sue found out that Tina was being sexually abused, confronts them. That's what happens. And the boys just happen to come home. I mean, I like the theory. I do like it. I mean, I wouldn't put it past those two men. No, I mean, they're out of their fucking mind. Uh, it's possible. That That's a good theory. I like that one. Okay. It seems like the main... Because what we don't know is what attacks Tina sustained. And I think that would help us too in figuring out who the main target is. Right, if she was sexually assaulted, right? We, you know, then we would know more as to like, okay, she was taken... Right. Was she was killed? Was she assaulted at... and then killed? Right. Uh, yeah, was she know. taken alive or was she taken dead and just dumped to kind of throw off law enforcement? We don't know. 
also it seems like like Sue was attacked before Johnny and Dana. Well, I know I kind of take that back. It's two completely different scenarios that could happen. Sue was attacked first. Johnny and Dana walk in on it. Or, I don't know. You just don't know who was attacked first. You don't know. All we know is... Sue does have a little bit more brutality in her attack. Right. But what we do know is that they were all three of them were bound. Mm-hmm. They were all struck to their left side of their body. Primarily. What it like, seems like, and what law enforcement speculates now, the new sheriff, and you know... Is that it seems as if Sue was attacked by one person and Johnny and Dana were attacked by a separate person because the injuries that Johnny and Dana sustain are very similar to each other. So maybe one person was holding back the two boys, hurting the two boys, whereas one person was attacking Sue. That could lead to the whole Bo and Marty thing, whereas Bo was frustrated with once again, it could go two ways. Bo was frustrated with Sue because he turned her down going to the bar. Or Marty was frustrated with Sue because he's trying. she's trying to convince Marilyn to leave him. They would both have reasons to, you know, inflict pain on, on, her, on Sue. And if Marty is trying to stay with Marilyn, the last thing he's going to want to do is murder her son. In reality, he's going to say, like, I love you. I killed these people because they're trying to separate us. But I saved your son. It's all weird to it's me. It's so sick. But a lot of the evidence does point to both Bo and... Uh, and Marty. And Marty, yeah. I mean, I, I sometimes I feel like that's so easy to just say, oh, well, you know, all the evidence points to them. But in this case, it kind of does. Yeah, that's what most people do think is that the evidence does part uh, point to... Marty and Bo, I mean, it just seems to make the most sense. Them leaving again at 115 without Marilyn. Marty being angry with Sue. Bo being angry with Sue. Them also not liking Johnny. It also, they, they have PTSD. They have killed before. I know at a time of war, but these men were not your average run-of-the-mill veterans from Vietnam. These men were sick men who we know that Bo had killed before for the mafia, and we know that Marty was extremely abusive. I think that what it came down to was they both talked. They both probably felt that they couldn't get away with murder and have protection based 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 on the relationship with the sheriff and him being in possible, you know a possible informant for the uh, Department of Justice. So I think they both know that they had some sort of protection, that they could get away with murder if they needed to commit it. And maybe Bo had an impulse. And it was, was you know, he had an impulse to kill. And Marty had a reason. Well, um, not a reason, I'm sorry. um, You know, uh, a a possible uh, target. And they both acted together. And they knew that they would get away with it. Correct. And maybe the whole community just didn't want to get involved. I, I think they didn't want to get involved because, I mean, the the town is so small that your community, everyone knows everyone. Maybe they felt threatened. Maybe they felt threatened as well. Yeah. And no one has come forward. It's just weird to me, though, that no one, no one still to this day Well, I think that maybe while that sheriff was in control, they didn't want to come out because they didn't felt, feel comfortable coming out. But like you said, even to this day, I mean... Some of these, it's, most it's of odd. these men are dead. It's right. very strange. It's odd. 
The sheriff is not in charge anymore. These people that are are possible suspects are dead. It just doesn't make, it make sense, which which kind of hints the idea, like, how far does this go? Right. Like, how far, you know, who else is, like, controlling this? It's it's right. it's, it's, it's weird. And it's very unfortunate. I mean, now you have Sheila, who is still alive. You have Ricky, Greg. I mean, Justin is still living with this all the time, him and his mother. And you have these people who will never have answers as to who killed their family members. And they may even be dealing with the guilt of knowing and not being able to tell. Yeah. But this is definitely a super bizarre case. We would love to know what you think, what theories you feel are most plausible, which ones are definitely crazy. We know there's some crazy ones out there. And you could reach out to us on Instagram and on Twitter at True Crime Couple. Let us know what you think. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Um, just want to give a little disclaimer. I'm sorry if that I ever pronounced things wrong. I know there was a few people that had problems the way I pronounced things. Really sorry. And we would love to hear what you think about how we're handling the cases. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Bye.